Hey there, everyone. My name is Matthew, and this is the Web3 Gamer Podcast. If you're interested in learning about the latest developments in gaming and technology, anything around blockchain, NFTs, and cryptocurrencies, and how they're changing the gaming industry, then this podcast is for you. In each episode, we explore the exciting world of Web3 gaming as it relates to blockchain, NFTs, and cryptocurrencies, and what they mean for the future of digital entertainment. You'll learn about new games and platforms built on blockchain technology, the rise of cryptocurrency use in these games, and how it's being implemented. We'll also talk to experts in the industry who will share their insights and provide a behind-the-scenes look at this fast-growing space. Even if you're new to gaming and technology, we're here to help you understand these emerging technologies and their potential impact on our lives. So join us for an informative and entertaining journey in the world of Web3 gaming and crypto and discover what the future holds for these exciting technologies. My name is Matthew, and this is the Web3 Gamer. This podcast is brought to you by Willie's Wieners. They ain't done till they're in a bun. Buy them in packs of 612 or a whole train's worth. Your wife loves them, the girl next door loves them. Hell, even the guy down the street who says he's just your friend loves them every now and then. Willie's Wieners. This podcast is brought to you by water. Remember to drink it, you stupid bitch. Beer can count, milk can count. Hell, anything that's got water in it can technically count. Well, friends, as we've discussed, if you're here, you're very much into cryptocurrencies blockchain, Web3 NFTs, you know, all the jazz, all the buzz, all the interesting subsectors of tech that we have not been in that long, honestly. So in this introductory podcast, really, I'm just going to get into a few things about for newbies. What is blockchain technology? What's the differences between Web 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0? And how do these, you know, apply to gaming in the very simplest of the sense? So if we're going to dive right into it, the simplest way to think of blockchain technology is when you go to a bank, there is technically a ledger there. In the olden days, you used to have a book. The book used to tell you and keep note of the transactions that went through the bank. So maybe I walk into the bank and I deposit $100. They'd make a note in the book, come in later that week, withdraw $20. They make a note in that book. There's always a ledger letting the bank know how much of my money is there, how much I've taken, how much I've deposited. That's a ledger. So blockchain technology is a decentralized ledger that allows for secure, transparent, and immutable transactions. The blockchain consists of a network of nodes, each of which stores a copy of this ledger. So by doing this, when a new transaction is added to the ledger, it is verified by the network nodes and then added to the blockchain. So the blockchain always has a copy of every ledger. So technically, if you wanted to go through and read every ledger all the way back, you could see how far back all the transactions go and pretty much see if anything's been messed with, especially since you can compare it to other people's and have a copy to know if anything goes wrong. And that's one of the key features of blockchain tech is that it is secure and tamper-proof. Once a transaction is added to the blockchain, it cannot be altered or deleted. This makes it ideal for use in applications that require secure and transparent transactions. So again, to reiterate, blockchain's 
act as this digital ledger across a peer-to-peer network. So when we reference nodes, we're typically referencing a computer because as the digital database and the transaction data is permanently recorded, stored, and encrypted onto the blocks that are then chained together, this physical electronic device, which again is typically a computer, maintains copies of the chain's webbing a network together, keeping the blockchain operational. And this is what we're talking about when we refer to the nodes of a blockchain. When we're saying, how is this decentralized? The reason this is decentralized is a blockchain node is participating and running the protocol software for a particular network. Since there's no one central entity in control, these nodes work together to form the governing infrastructure of a blockchain. Their primary function is to maintain consensus of a public ledger. This is accomplished by transaction validation and monitoring, live activity to ensure system security. And they're rewarded for this, typically with the currency of the chain. Sometimes they do it out of the goodness of their heart because they want to keep the network running. But the main motivator here is monetary resources in the form of the crypto. So... On the basic level, a node is simply a device running the software of a specific blockchain. Routers, modems, switches, hubs, servers, and even printers, basically anything that has an IP address can technically serve as a node. Nodes depend on the architecture and design needs of a specific blockchain protocol. They all have different functions to play in maintaining the operations of the blockchain ecosystem. Also, these nodes are the reason that the chain can be as decentralized as it is. Nodes are the source of truth for a blockchain. They moderate the network. They make sure users play by the rules. Without them, essentially, you lose the infrastructure of a a, a blockchain. The more nodes there are, the more decentralized a chain will be. And when we're looking at a blockchain, there's a lot of purposes, operationally speaking, but a big one is validation. And so these chains, or rather these nodes, are algorithmically programmed to execute transactions based on a majority consensus. So in short, these nodes accept or reject proposals. Those that are authenticated get added to the chain, copied and distributed network-wide, while unapproved proposals are rejected and never make it in. Consensus mechanisms by the nodes ensure that all the nodes remain in sync. Since new blocks are processed live and all copies of the ledger are instantaneously updated, this creates this unanimous agreement reflect noted in the nodes showing the current true state of the network. So now we've talked about what is blockchain, we've talked about why it's decentralized, and the last thing we need to discuss is what makes it immutable. So with each block in the blockchain, there is a hash, and the hash is a long string of numbers that essentially identifies the relevant data within that block. Each subsequent block has the hash of the previous block pointing back all the way down the chain. So if any of those hashes differ or do not line up with the hash-identifying string of numbers, we know there has been a bad action or poor action in the chain. And so if you don't know what hashing is, it's really just taking data of 
a specific length. It could be one word, a thousand words, and you're always outputting a fixed data set length. Um, think it, it's a part of encryption at this point, and I don't want to get too deep into it. Um, there's plenty of videos on YouTube you could find helping you understanding what is hashing, what is cryptography, but just know that they play a major part in blockchain tech as a whole and are a massive part of why blockchain tech is considered immutable, the final point we need to talk about with this tech. And so at this point, we've kind of discussed a lot of reasons why blockchain is immutable. And the definition of immutable is unchanging over time or unable to be changed. So with the discussion of the nodes having to verify the transactions, everyone has to be in consensus for the creation of a new block, and none of these networks are connected. They're decentralized. Uh, they're all separate from one another, creates this immutability, meaning that unless there is a massive, what is called a 51% attack, meaning 51% of the network is run by these bad actors collaborating together, utilizing so much hash power, they can rewrite the past, which would cost a ton of time and money. I mean, we're talking like a nation state would have to perform this attack. The possibility of change is very, very, very low, but not impossible. And that's the beauty of the longer these chains are around and the bigger they get, the harder this gets. So all that to be said, you know, I may have missed a few points with blockchain, but I did my best to kind of give you a crash course on basically what it is, what do people always talk about, why it's so, you know, decentralized, immutable, just overall how the technology works. So now what I want to get into is the discussion of Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3. Where do they originate? What are their differences? And how do we understand their role in the internet and this technological boom of blockchain as a whole? And so funny enough, there's this entire lexicon of words that you've probably heard me throwing around with not only technology as a whole, but definitely within blockchain technology. And so when we refer to web 1, 2, and 3.0, just know the web is different from the internet. So when we're talking about the web, formerly referred to as the World Wide Web, that's the pages and sites you see when you log online. The internet is a series of interconnected computer systems that the web functions on. Plus, the medium allows files and emails to travel along. So the web is the data or info, and the internet is the medium in which that data can be displayed or travel along. And so funny enough, that's where WWW comes from. It stands for World Wide Web. So it's a really cool part of the internet culture that sticks around to this day. But to put it another way, you could say the internet is the highway system that connects all these cities, and the web is the collection of essentially like rest stops along the ways, uh, restaurants, convenience stores, gas stations, essentially things that continue to use the internet and connect its users and websites with each other. Okay, so what is Web 1.0? Really, Web 1.0 was the static pages. You know, it's where people went to find facts, information. Basically, it was just data. The web version is sometimes called the read-only web because there wasn't any sort of visuals, controls, or interactiveness that we enjoy in today's modern-day web. 
This is the term people use to describe the earliest form of the internet. People saw that there was a worldwide network that hinted at this future digital information sharing potential. So these are the web pages, depending on your age, where it has a lot of GIF buttons and graphics. And you know, it is pronounced GIF. The official creator told us back in 2013 that is how it's pronounced. But technically, the Oxford Dictionary says you can pronounce it either way and it is accepted. I don't personally care. I just got flacked enough growing up calling it a GIF instead of a GIF that eventually I was like, you know what? It's a GIF. And I did my research way back in the day. And when the original creator said it was a GIF, I said, all right, that's how we're pronouncing it then. But it doesn't matter. This is besides the point. Again, Web 1.0 is essentially a digitized dictionary. And you're making it accessible to people online who can look at it, who can read in it, but they can't do anything with it. They can't react to it. So that's Web 1.0 in a nutshell. And what's even crazier is the timeline for Web 1.0 is 1989 all the way to 2005. So before this point, things like Reddit, social media and forums, blogs, communities, places people can participate in what we know of as the current social web does not exist. This comes into existence with Web 2.0, and that's its main differentiator from Web 1.0. We start integrating JavaScript frameworks. It changes from a read-only web to a participative social web. So it's better. It's a more enhanced version of its predecessor. And the interactivity has been improved. The main thing here is we're focusing on the end user's experience, meaning the user wants to engage with it. By engaging with it and driving engagement, you can now drive monetary gain. So again, podcasting, social media, blogging, commenting, uh, social networking, uh, any sort of interactive, dynamic, web-curated comment is Web 2.0. And with the included rise of mobile internet access and the rise of social networks, grew this dramatic upturn in Web 2.0's growth. So having these mobile devices, Android-powered devices and iPhones, and then apps like TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, you know, you just have this expansion of this online landscape. And we're still in Web 2.0 at this moment. And so this brings us to Web 3.0. And what people need to understand is Web 3.0 has a definitive meaning, but also there's a lot of future growth and uncertainty surrounding it. So we have a, a good amount of current elements today, but we're not in the full realization of Web 3.0 yet. So Web 3.0, which is also referred to Web 3, is basically built on the core ideas of decentralization, openness, and user utility. So Web 1.0 was the read-only web, Web 2.0 was the participative social web, and Web 3.0 is known as the read, write, and execute on your own web. Tim Berners-Lee, who initially called Web 3.0 the semantic web, envisioned this autonomous, intelligent, and open internet that used AI and machine learning to act as a global brain and essentially process content both contextually and conceptually. 
this idealized version hasn't really come out yet, you know, especially due to the technical limitations of AI and how expensive it is to convert human language into something that is easily and readily understood by computers. And so for our purposes, what you need to understand is that Web 3.0 lets users interact, exchange info, and securely conduct financial transactions without a centralized authority or coordinator. As a result, each user becomes a content owner instead of just a content user. And so what's amazing about Web 3.0 is it facilitates participation without needing authorization from a governing body. It's permissionless. In many ways, it can be used for metaverses, which is VR and meta kind of gets used interchangeably, but again, a 3D rendered boundless virtual world. It can be used for things like blockchain games. They allow users to have actual ownership of in-game resources following the principles of NFTs. And with things like decentralized finance, which allows for payment blockchains, as we discussed earlier, peer-to-peer -peer digital financial transactions, smart contracts, and cryptocurrency, and finally, decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs or DAOs. What's really cool about these is the community members own these online communities and such have the creative freedom to manage and own their communities, which is amazing. And so again, Web 3.0 isn't entirely in place or fully fleshed out yet, but what you need to know is we're seeing elements of it already working their way into our internet experiences. Things like NFTs, blockchain, distributed ledgers, and things like Sirius, technically Web 3.0 technology, because it's AI. And so while some people would argue Web 2.0 was from 2005 to about 2010, and since 2010 you've been living in 3.0, I truly believe that we're still living in Web 2.0 because the formal definition of Web 3.0, or at least Berners-Lee's initial vision, has not fully come to be. And so with Web 3.0, there'll be some potentials and pitfalls, obviously. So some of the greatest potentials is going to be data ownership. You'll have the choice of what details you want to provide to which companies and advertising agencies, and you'll be able to make money off of it. Currently, the companies just collect your data and make their own money off it, and you have no say in the matter other than going, I approve or disapprove. And realistically, even though you can say you approve or disapprove, you don't truly know which data is being shared or collected. There's a reason we have so many lawsuits going on all the time and payouts for previous data collection methods. Facebook has gone through them. Google has gone through them. I'm pretty sure Netflix has gone through them, and I'm sure there's many more I can't even think of right now and many more that will occur. Another potential is fewer middlemen. Since you'll be the one in control of your data and true ownership, there won't be a middle ground or a middle company such as the ones previously mentioned. And so you will be the one in control. And lastly, transparency. You're going to be constantly aware as a stakeholder of your data, as the owner of your data. You will be aware of the worth and business that you are connected to with said data. Now, some pitfalls with Web3 is it can be difficult to regulate with everyone being their own unique content creator and owner and with the great desire and creation of decentralization. You're like, where are the actors to come in and make sure things are regulated and people stay on tact and there's not bad actors? 
Another pitfall is users will need a device with above average hardware to access Web3. Once we get to a point where we have these deep computational metrics, especially around AI, your general smartphone or dated smartphone or computer may not be able to access Web3. It may only be able to access Web2, which if that's all you care for, great. But if you're somebody who wants to participate in Web3 and don't have the capabilities, it's unfortunate that there is a barrier such as that. And lastly, for people getting into it who are new, it could be a little challenging to understand. I know for myself, my brother, YouTube, and so many other resources were an amazing help when I was understanding Web3 capabilities, especially around blockchain, NFTs, cryptocurrency, and how it relates to gaming in Web3 space. So it's something that for newbies, if there's not a direct how-to guide or an easy place to go, it, it could be very challenging. So now we've discussed a little bit of the backgrounds on blockchain. We've discussed Web 1, 2, and 3.0. Now we're going to really get into how Web 3.0 interacts in the new mode of blockchain gaming. And there are three things we're going to discuss with that particularly. One is going to be asset ownership through primarily NFTs. Another is going to be the overall decentralization concept and DAOs and how they can control the communities, the game direction and development. And then lastly, the real currency you can earn from playing these games or from buying and selling your earned in-game assets. So if we discuss the first concept of asset ownership, primarily in the sense of NFTs, we are going to have to do a little bit of background on what is an NFT or a non-fungible token. Its formal definition is a cryptographic asset on a blockchain with unique identification codes and metadata that distinguish them from each other. So what the hell does that mean? Essentially, you want to think of them as assets that have been digitized via a blockchain. They live on the blockchain. They each have unique identification codes and metadata that cannot be replicated. They're digital representations of physical assets. People like to compare them to digital passports because each token contains a unique non-transferable identity to distinguish it from other tokens. And what you need to understand is the majority of the current market is centered around collectibles. So things like trading cards, digital art, we've even seen sports collectible NFT cards. Anything that can have a potential form of rarity or limitation in terms of collectible quality. And so because these NFTs are on the blockchains, they can be bought, sold, and traded so much easier because there's no need for an intermediary. Someone sets the price, you either meet or offer somewhere in between, they accept, and then the token is transferred from one user's wallet to another. Now, even though this is on the same blockchains that the cryptocurrencies are on, there are two key differences between cryptocurrencies and NFTs. Cryptocurrencies can be traded and exchanged for the same cryptocurrency or one for one. So if I want to trade one Ethereum to somebody else for one Ethereum, it is fungible and holds that value. Since every NFT is unique and irreplaceable, it's impossible to trade one FT for another NFT. They can both be valued at the same currency rate on their 
prospective chains, but it is impossible to set them at the same price based on their tokenization aspect. Okay, so now we've given you a brief overview of what NFTs are. So how the hell do they interact with Web3 Gaming? So there's a few games we can go through that are widely popular. You could go out and research on your own. One of my favorites is Gods Unchained. So if you've ever played Magic the Gathering, which is a classic trading card game, fantasy trading card game, there is a variety of trading cards. You can build decks, you can collect them, they're physical. And what's interesting is just like Pokemon trading cards, they go up in value over time. So you can sell these physical goods, make money, or reinvest in the game itself. So Gods Unchained is essentially the digital version of Magic the Gathering. It plays very similar to the game. It's a trading card based. But what's interesting and unique is each of the trading cards is an NFT. So they have their own marketplace where you could buy, sell, trade, exchange cards to other players. And you unlock booster packs by just playing the game, winning battles, and leveling up over time. So the cool thing with that is, I don't know about you, as a gamer, I've played many games for many hours in the past with the only reward being pure enjoyment. You know, if I think back about all the games I used to play and the possibility of making money on them, it's crazy to think about how some of those games that I would grind in for hours, I may have an item now that I don't play the game anymore. I'm probably never going to play the game again. But if somebody's like, hey, that item you grinded for, you could uh, sell for 50 bucks. I'd be like, let's do it. Because that's a sick little payoff for me just enjoying and playing the game. And so that's one of the things you really need to think about with NFTs in the Web3 gaming space is Nobody's going to want to buy, sell, trade, or collect these NFTs unless it's a fun-to-play game in the first place. And if you like Magic the Gathering, Gods Unchained is a very, very fun Magic the Gathering-esque trading card digital game. And again, remember, just like when you buy the physical trading cards, you own them. You've paid for them. You can resell them, exchange them as you want. But in most video games, these assets are digital, and you can't do that. So with this... Being able to have the digital assets as an NFT allows you to own your in-game assets and do what you want with them. Say you stop playing the game and no longer interested, you realize you've accumulated a healthy little investment. What's wrong with you selling them? You got the enjoyment out of the game. You played. You grew its user base. It gives you true control over your gaming in a unique way we've never seen before. So another interestingly unique way to think about this as you compare it to conventional gaming is think about the first Super Mario Brothers on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Came out in 1986. By 1991, it had sold 20 million copies. Now, obviously, everybody didn't beat that game to the end of every copy sold. But imagine at one point in time that if you beat that game all the way to the end, you got a unique NFT that was given to you or some sort of, you know, item maybe you took a picture of the screen back in the days and you'd send it in and get a t-shirt or a poster something of that nature basically it was limited it was rare it was a collectible but we'll say for our purposes an nft
Another thing you could compare to or think about is Call of Duty. So when you would level up in the game, you would earn skins, characters, weapons, um, and all these things, you know, could never leave the game. They were stuck within the game. So, you know, once you were done playing the initial COD and like, you know, Call of Duty Modern Warfare and moved on to Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, none of that carried over. So imagine it could. That's the whole idea of owning the digital assets, having them be uniquely yours and being able to transfer them from one game to another. So the next thing we're going to talk about is the DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations and their role in Web3 Gaming. And specifically here, we're going to focus on Star Atlas because I think they've done a really, really amazing job with what they stand for and how they should act and operate. But first, we're going to give you a brief overview of what are DAOs. DAOs are formally defined as a blockchain native governance system and software protocol that uses automation to coordinate and execute the will of a decentralized set of human participants. DAOs rely on multi-signature wallets and on-chain proposal voting systems for member signaling and proposal execution. DAOs differ from and improve on traditional corporate structures by lowering barriers to citizenship, aligning incentives among all stakeholders, increasing transparency, and reducing friction in the decision-making process and eliminating intermediaries. So what does all that mean? So when we're looking at these DAOs, they're usually based on a specific chain, whether Ethereum, Polygon, Cardano, it varies. So within each ecosystem, specifically, if it relates to a game, you need to own an asset to that game to be able to vote on the future of that game. Star Atlas is really cool in that the long-term vision of Star Atlas is an autonomous player-owned game, fully controlled and funded by decentralized governance. So maybe they're having a vote on what do you want to see in the next episode of the game for the story? People who own assets who are on the chain can propose new ideas and then other people can vote on it so that essentially the development team and people who own the company let the players truly control the direction of the game for what they want, what will keep them engaged and wanting to play. And this is so unique because we don't really see this in traditional gaming sector. Essentially, the companies decide they know what the customer wants based on previous successful experiences, and that's what they cater to going forward. Now, in the age of the internet, we get a lot of feedback and flack, and they will take that going forward, especially with games that have poor launches, you know, like Fallout 76, and rebalance it and add things to it to essentially make it a better user experience later on. But again, the whole idea of these DAOs is if you are a gamer, especially on a specific network or game, you play it enough that you own in-game assets. Maybe it's in-game money, uh, it's in-game land, it's in-game ships, weapons. It can be such a multitude of things. By owning these in-game assets or owning these in-game currencies or tokens, you have voting power going forward on the direction of the game. And that's a really cool thing to have as a gamer and a user. That's something very, very unique to give the gamer who ultimately has all the power because we can decide if we like or dislike a game and make a game succeed or crash at will, uh, the ability to build a game, especially someone who may have no development background experience, no possible way of actually building a game, this gives them this way to be a part of an ecosystem of something they truly enjoy and are a part of and would be regardless if they had this. And so... This is a really, really cool aspect of Web3 gaming, and it makes it very unique compared to traditional gaming in this sense. The gamer 
has a lot more influence and experience to control where the game could go in the future. And these developers really listen to their communities because that's one of the big things of Web3 Gaming currently. They want to put the creativity in the hands of the user, which is, again, as we've discussed previously, a big part of Web3 Gaming, being a creator and not just a user. The last thing we want to talk about is the real currency you could earn from selling your in-game assets or maybe even crypto you earn from playing the game that you could sell for real fiat currency later down the line. So again, another example we'll default back to is Gods Unchained. Each of your trading cards is an NFT, just like regular traditional Magic the Gathering. Some of those cards go up in value over time, and you may not play with them. You may just want to reinvest in the game, buy booster packs, decks, things of that nature. So by them going up in value, you could sell or trade them since they're non-fungible. Remember, they can't be traded for another NFT equally unless both parties decide that maybe the cost of each NFT is equalized and they find it to be a fair trade. But in terms of the general way they work, that's not how they're considered. It's not like cryptocurrencies where one-to-one ratio. So if you sold a trading card on Gods Unchained, you just made real money, fiat money rather, from selling this asset, an NFT asset that was really just an asset of the game. So what's interesting about that is if we look at The Witcher 3, you would collect a whole bunch of trading cards in that game, but it was just to play the game. They even made a separate later released uh, game just playing Gwent. And the funny thing about that is you could never sell those cards outside the game, but there are people who really would grind to get every card in the set because they enjoyed playing it so much. So that's a perfect example of how there are people out there who play games anyways, don't look to use these in-game assets or make money from them. They just enjoy the game, want to collect them, grind, have fun. But then if you are able to sell those assets later on, there are probably plenty of people, myself included, who if you're done playing with the game or you got doubles or extras that you know you don't care about having doubles or extras and you know they're worth a certain value, why wouldn't you sell them and take the real currency fiat out of there? And so for some people, it's not currency fiat. Some people are just getting the cryptocurrency of whatever chain it's on, whether that's you know Ethereum, Polygon, you name it, and they never cash it out outside of that cryptocurrency. They just keep that cryptocurrency in their wallet as their store of value. But still, for someone who was playing the game and just ended up selling it, it's something that was unanticipated. So again, we kind of discussed this earlier, but the idea of being able to take and own these in-game assets and make real crypto or currency gains from them, from simply playing the game and being a part of the ecosystem, is something really unique to Web3. Well, and I think that about wraps up everything we've wanted to talk about in this episode. I want to thank you for sticking with me this long, and I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Matthew, and this is the Web3 Gamer. Well, friends, that's another episode down. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate you rating it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you can rate and wherever you listen to and get your podcast. It would mean the world to us and help get this podcast to people who truly are involved in Web3 Gaming 
blockchain, and cryptocurrency and want to learn more and stay on top of these emerging technologies. If you have any queries, want to reach out about any collaborations or advertisements, as well as want to reach out with any improvements you think we could make on the podcast, please email us at theweb3gamer at proton.me. We would love to hear from you and take every response very seriously. Take care and keep gaming, my friends.